When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. Hey, Ben. Today, before we do anything, yeah. we need to make note of this. This is the very first podcast ever recorded at our new facility. Not the very first Car Stuff podcast? Uh, no, just the first podcast of all podcasts recorded uh, here at this building in our new location. In general, you are the first person speaking on air in our brand new office here uh, just off of Ponce de Leon. Yeah, it's a huge building. It's an old Sears Roebuck Company uh, building. I think we talked about it before. It was retail space and kind of a shipping area. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 2,100,000 square feet is the size of the building. We occupy a uh, relatively small section of that, but it's a, a much bigger office than we were in before. And uh, it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of new stuff happening, and uh, we're just trying to get the feel of the new equipment and all that. But uh, we are here to uh, to begin with uh, hopefully what's an, a very interesting car stuff episode for you today. Yeah, and uh, of course, for everybody who's wondering, our super producer, Noel Brown, is still with us. What's going on, Noel? Hey, Noel. A lot closer now. You can probably hear me on the mic. He's sitting very close. And uh, <laughs> that's nothing wrong with that. We like that. Uh, yeah. And, uh, we're close-knit family here at Car Stuff. Right. We've also got a lot of stuff to look at in the space itself. Uh, Scott, as you mentioned before, and I think as we mentioned on a previous podcast, a uh, train line ran directly through this building. Ah, yes, it did. And uh, that kind of ties in with what we're talking about today, doesn't it? Yes, sir, it does. Today, Scott, we are traveling to a rural location, uh, let's say around about 50 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just east of Pittsburgh. Just east of Pittsburgh, about 50 miles east, Mm -hmm. a place called the Laurel Tunnel. Yeah, the Laurel Hill Tunnel is what we're talking about today. And this does have, uh, this does play into automotive racing and and cars and testing and all this stuff that, you know, is probably, you probably read about, you know, ahead of this when you're reading the, uh, the meta information for this episode. Uh huh. And, uh, I, I promise you we'll get around to that, but there's a story that leads up to this. We have to get to it kind of in a roundabout way. Yeah, let's uh, let's go for it. Let's have story time. All right. Well, this uh, this was actually a suggestion from a listener that we should mention first off. His name is Charlie Scott. So Charlie wrote in and said, uh, "How about an episode on on this topic here?" And it's a, it's this uh, well, the topic title is 
the secret racing test tunnel that no one wants to talk about. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's an intriguing title, isn't it? I thought, wait a second, let me let me look at that again. I read it again, and I went to the uh, to the link, and I read the article, and it is a fascinating article. It's in Road and Track, mm-hmm. and it was written by Larry Webster, who is the um, uh, sort of new but not so new anymore uh, editor-in-chief of Road and Track magazine. And it was kind of a personal quest of his to find this place. Yeah, no kidding. This is as much a story about him searching for it as it is about what Laurel Hill Tunnel actually is. And it's a real thing. This story came out uh, in January of 2015. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, it's a story that's a long time in the making, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. you got to go way, way back. And, you know, we won't go... In a lot of detail, but we do need to tell you that this story begins back in the 1880s, 1883, (laughs) as a matter of fact. And that's when they started working on these tunnels, right? And what was going on at the time was they were building a railroad system. And part of that railroad system is to go through the Allegheny Mountains, which Mm -hmm. is uh, part of the Appalachian Mountains. It's Mm -hmm. about, I think the Alleghenies are like 400 miles long. They're going to build a railroad through this area. And as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of difficult terrain to try to cover at that point so yeah. they had to go through several mountains and part of that i think they it was it nine tunnels they created yeah they built nine tunnels well the here here's where it gets a little tricky the route itself required nine tunnels mm-hmm. for this line between harrisburg uh to pittsburgh and they almost completed everything but investors started getting a little bit shy about it and in 1885 the construction stopped. The rail line was never built, and the tunnels were abandoned. Ah, uh, yeah. So they're okay. So they're abandoned in 1885. But then later, uh, when they were creating the the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which is uh, which is uh, the first super highway in America, is what they call it. Really, it's right? A, it's yeah, a massive highway. But uh, the, when they were creating the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which opened in 1940, uh, they repurposed some of these tunnels for that uh, for that highway. Right, and one of the reasons it's called the first super highway is because of the size of the road. It was a four-way or four-lane motorway, but the problem with that is that the tunnels they were using, which again, if you'll recall, were only built for trains, uh, became choking points or too small. Yeah, because they were just two lanes right there. So yeah, you had super four, narrow. four lanes leading up to two lanes and then back out to four and then back down to two, and you can understand the difficulty there, right? Uh-huh. And lots of travel was happening on these roads. So... They decided that they were going to bypass the tunnels, you know, completely make it a four lane highway all the way and, and eliminate those, those choking points. And so these tunnels kind of went abandoned for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, since about what, late 1960s, I believe they've been abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, three of the tunnels were completely bypassed. Mm-hmm. And this means, according to our author here, that the locals were Surely, you know, exploring, because I'm, I, you know, Scott, I'm sure you did this and listeners, I'm sure you did this. When you were a kid, you and your crew of uh, fellow ne'er-do-wells or whatever would go around and try to find stuff like that. I mean, kids get in everywhere. So surely some kids checked out these caverns, maybe some adults, uh, but eventually what happens is that our author sees stories about this winding up online and there's one guy, Scott, who says that, hey, one of these tunnels doesn't look abandoned. No, no. In fact, there's a stack of racing tires outside, like used racing tires are piled up outside this tunnel entrance. 
and he didn't know what was going on. It was, I think it was enclosed, right? So you couldn't go in and find out what was happening at the right. time. Right, yeah, there was no access. Yeah, so this Laurel Hill Tunnel is, uh, for whatever reason, has these piles of, ra- of racing tires next to it, but there's no explanation of what was going on there, right? Mm-hmm. And the author was thinking, well, that's really odd. Why would somebody pile up racing tires in the middle of the mountains out in this abandoned? I mean, it's weed covered. It's uh, it's ivy covered. Right. Um, it looks nothing like the photos of when it was in use in the 1940s, 1950s. Um, it's completely overgrown. It looks like something out of that uh, out of the series Lost or something. Like that, <laughs> yeah, right. It yeah. really does. Yeah. On the way to a hatch somewhere. Yeah, and then so other people kind of chime in with, "Yeah, I've, I've seen that, but uh, I haven't really given it much thought." You know, it looked like a pile of junk laying next to it. I'm not sure what was happening. And uh, it turns out, you know, the the locals knew maybe a little bit more than the rest of the world did at that point. Right. Maybe even a little bit more than they were letting on. Mm-hmm. So the guy starts wondering and turning this over in his head and he gets more and more caught up in the idea that there has to be something there yeah and those tires that we mentioned they were spotted sometime around 2004 i believe it was yeah, right yeah and this uh, this author um what's his name again it was uh larry webster mm-hmm. he makes a trip to pennsylvania he decides you know it's, it's worth my time to go out there and check it out and there's a good reason why he feels it's worth his time. I think we should maybe backtrack just for a second yeah. before he actually approaches the tunnel because um, he got a uh, he got a tip in 2007 from a tour guide, of all things. And this is so weird because he had, he kind of heard about stuff or thought about this in the past, and, and um, this all makes sense when I'm, I'm going to read just a little bit of this story because sure. um, it, it's really the only way to get the message across. So in the winter of 2007, he gets this tip. Um, about what would be called a racer's edge, I guess, because he was touring a, a scale model wind tunnel facility in Indianapolis, of all places, um, and listening to the guide explain, you know, the exorbitant efforts that uh, manufacturers will, will go to in order to simulate the real world conditions that the, that the car will be, uh, you know, existing in, you know, right. race car or street car or whatever type of car. And, the idea here in the, in the scale model wind tunnel was that they use these, uh, these race car models that are significantly scaled down, yet they're, they cost an extreme amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars each. And they use rolling roads and they use other types of, uh, other types of systems within the wind tunnel even to make it exactly like real world conditions, but they can't quite get, you know, the driver feel or any of that stuff down as well. And they're not entirely sure that that's exactly how it's going to operate in the real world. Right, yeah. I mean, they're pretty close. Yeah, but close is a dangerous thing to be when you're testing, uh, when you're testing the ability of a vehicle to respond to these kind of conditions. Yeah, so then he asks a very important question. This is really the, the crux of the whole thing here. Mm-hmm. He says, I asked the guide why they didn't measure downforce and drag by driving real cars down a real road. And he knew the answer right away, you know, but he wanted to hear the guide say it. Right. Well, the changing weather conditions would affect the results, but he wanted to hear the guide say it. So the guy says, the guide says, you know, what you need, and this guy wanted to remain anonymous at this point. He says, is it, is a car wind tunnel? But the thing is that you need, you need a, an actual tunnel that you could drive in, you know, something that you could, you could drive at speed and measure the results on, you know, with, with a real driver, a real size car, not a scale model in a wind tunnel. In real conditions, in, yeah. In real conditions, but that's very difficult to do, right? So he says you'd need about a mile long and something that's about a mile long and flat. But if you're underground, you could have these, uh, like repeatable conditions. You would know exactly, uh, how, you know, everything would remain constant in that tunnel. 
And that's the, that's the key is that you'd have to have this long tunnel that would that everything would remain constant, and then you would have solid, repeatable data that you could then learn from. You could you could uh, you know alter the design with contrast and compare results. Yeah, Ex- exactly right. So he kind of continues on like uh, in a, in kind of a uh, a tongue in cheek way and says, "What if you know someone found an abandoned tunnel and then <laughs> repurposed it? You know, maybe for for a racing application, something like that." He says, "I don't really know of anything like that that's going on." And the author was pretty intrigued at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and here's the thing: he kind of did have a suspicion that something was going on. Well, he didn't kind of have a suspicion; he absolutely did. And he started asking himself, "Well, let's let's just say that this is not an anomalous pile of tires. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that somebody else." had asked themselves the same questions that I just asked this journalist. And furthermore, what if one of those people asking those questions was someone with the ability to to answer them? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So he goes on this kind of quest and, you know, information search, and no one's really talking to him about anything. You know, he does find – I think he does – find some locals that will talk to him but that's kind of later in the story but right. but the idea is that so okay so locals kind of know what's happening here and the the question is like who who would possibly use a tunnel for for testing in Pennsylvania who could who could possibly use a tunnel for testing right. and his his thought immediately goes to either Roger Penske uh-huh, or yeah. or Chip Ganassi and that's because Roger uh, Penske attended Lehigh uh, University, right? Yeah, which is in Bethlehem. Right. And Chip Ganassi uh, is partially headquartered in Pittsburgh. Now, mm-hmm. uh, he's got a lot of racing operations, and he grew up in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's got uh, some, some close ties, I guess, to the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. And really, that was kind of the best leads that he had to go on there, right? So. He starts asking questions like any good journalist reporter would do. Mm-hmm. He starts asking questions and kind of nosing around places and gets a lot of doors shut in his face, frankly, to, you know, when he says, Hey, I've, uh, I've got some questions for the, uh, the, the chip connect. Well, he actually calls the chip connect PR team. Right. And says, just trying to kind of feel them out, trying to get an idea of what's going on there because sure. he, he really has a strong suspicion that that's who's there. But he doesn't want to play all his cards either. Exactly right. So he says like, uh, maybe. Um, you know, all his, all his requests, you know, most of them were denied. Some of them were, were unanswered, but he says, well, maybe, um, I'll call them and, and say that I have some, some stuff that I want to test in the tunnel, you know, just kind of throw it out there and see what they say. Like, do they, do they admit that there, there is a tunnel or do they say, well, I don't know what you're talking about or, you know, how is it going to be responded to? If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh, yeah. One thing that we should also say, uh, he called the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission mm-hmm. directly because they would be the best people with history on this. Yeah, yeah. And then guess who calls back? Ah, yes. That's maybe the biggest tip. Yeah, John Olgan, Ganassi's PR guy. Okay, so you call the Pennsylvania Turnpike Association or whatever yeah. it was, right? And their answer was or, stuff like, why do you need to know? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> very suspicious stuff. Okay, so I can kind of understand them saying that, but then why would a return call come back from – you know, Chip Ganassi's PR. So that pretty much tells him right away. And then he knows he's got a lead there. So then, then that's when I guess, Ben, he does say he's going to try to try to get them to talk about the tunnel outright, which they really haven't done up until this point, because this is pre 2007. So he says things like, I'm, I'm interested in setting an underground speed record. Is there, you know, something maybe you could, you could comment on this, you know, maybe help me out a little bit. Uh, or he says, I'd like to test a, a brand new Corvette. And I, I'm, I'm looking for a place that has these conditions. And, he would kind of lay out the conditions that would be present in a tunnel. And, uh, and they would still, they, they wouldn't respond. A lot of these went completely unanswered. So, so nothing worked. He wasn't really getting any kind of information from him. Um, but again, it's not a complete secret in the racing community. A lot of people, a lot of people know about this thing. He just can't get Ganassi or Ganassi's PR team to really talk about it. Right. To go on the record saying it, which is the most important part. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, he tells us a little bit more about Ganassi himself. Now, Ganassi is a lot more than uh, just a guy who owns racing operations. Mm-hmm. He's got a history with racing that goes way back. He is uh, he is an inventor, and uh, he he's he's a pretty smart dude. But he is also not one with a great tolerance for uh, people digging into his business. Oh, sure. In fact, the author calls him a genius. I mean, yes. he has a lot of respect for him, you know, the, the, what he does in the racing world and everything. So there's, there's no bad blood or anything like that. It's just more of this, uh, this, this chess game that they're playing at this point. <laughs> That's he's a good ask, word, Scott. Yeah. He's asking him, he's asking him about it. He's not replying in the right way or not responding in the correct way. But then finally, at, there's an event happening in mid Ohio. And so he's in this RV with him, you know, at some point with other media. Yeah. And he asked him something about the, about the tunnel, you know, in front of everybody. And Canassi responds to him, if you get a Ferrari, you can drive it in the tunnel. And he says, well, this is actually good because he's admitting that there's that. But, but Ganassi's angle here, I think, was that he's telling this, this, I guess, what would be a small-time reporter or what he thinks. You know, if you can get a Ferrari, sure, I'll let you drive it in my tunnel. Right. The assumption being that you cannot get a Ferrari. But here's the thing. 
uh, he had he had actually seen the tunnel himself for his own eyes. Yeah. He was hiking in 07. Yeah. Uh, and he had done a bunch of different pitches and people weren't responding at all. This is after five years. Yeah, this is after five years, Scott. And he was studying Ganassi the entire time and seeing that the IndyCar team that Ganassi has uh, won four straight championships from 08 to 11. And as, as this is the exciting part to me. And can you imagine he's in the position where he goes, yeah, I can get a Ferrari. Yeah, he can. He can, he can, you know, secure one for the yeah. weekend or whatever. So he could do that, but then they don't respond. You know, he says, okay, well, I've got the Ferrari. Can I come drive in the tunnel? And there's no response. You know, it's, it's lack of response or it's just completely ignored. Right. Yeah. And there's a reason for this. And I think we should talk about the reason for this. They're not just being rude to the guy. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of it. I don't know. But, uh, the, the whole point of this is that they kind of fear publicity about the tunnel. Right, yeah, which goes back to what you were saying about the racing edge. And yeah. we'll see this, we'll see this come up, uh, before because another, another interesting thing about the, uh, the tunnel, if we can introduce a new character here, is a guy named Ben Bowlby. Ben Bowlby. B-O-W-L-B-Y. Okay. So not, not me, no relation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, Ben Bowlby is one of the people who would later go on to design a Delta Wing uh, with Ganassi. Ah, yes. And he, uh, the journalist says he's digging in and he finds out that there's a patent held by Ganassi and Bowlby for a method of testing a car in an enclosed, pretty much a wind tunnel. Yeah. In, in other words, he's got a patent on the idea of, of driving in a tunnel at speed in order to measure the results. And let's be fair about this, uh, cause I want to make sure we really highlight this point. It's not that these guys are a bunch of jerks or anything. It's that if sanctioning bodies find out about this stuff, you know, racing is always, in some races more than others, racing is always about trying to uh, fight the rules. You're racing the rules as much as you're racing other drivers. Exactly right. And here's the thing. You know, we, we mentioned the innovation and all that, right? And that's how this article leads off. It yeah. leads off with this uh, with a story of, like, you know, why... Why, if you ask anyone about racing or why racing matters, and, and somebody is going to say that, you know, produces new technology that makes streetcars better, that's always the answer, right? It's that, yeah. you know, it's like a fast development area, and that's and that's why it's really sure. good for us, right? Rear view, mirrors, yeah. uh, new kinds of braking systems. And you know what? All that's totally true. I mean, mm-hmm. it really did happen that way, and it does happen that way. It kind of it kind of still does, but maybe not to the extent that you think. And and that's the thing that this author point out, points out is that, you know, Fifty years ago, it was like right from the track, right onto your streetcar. But now it's a little bit different in that, um, you know, racing cars, modern racing cars are really tightly regulated. And in order to control costs and competition levels, you know, so that everybody's relatively equally matched, right? Sure. So they they really stifle the the minds of the engineers that are that are, uh, I guess, creating new products for the street for the uh, race cars, rather. So. And I say stuff. I mean, I know there's always development going on, and we've talked about McLaren and how they test. Like it seems like every, I think it's every 20 minutes they try to test new technology. Yeah, yeah um, they're so they're true. constantly working in their F1 Skunk Works, you know, building. And and I know everybody else is doing similar things, not quite maybe to the degree that McLaren is doing that, but um, what they're doing is they're gaining tenths of a second on a racetrack on a Formula One car. And I know some of that 
you know, passes down to the streetcars. But it's not like you mentioned, Ben, with rearview mirrors and with seat belts and braking systems and tires and stuff like that. Right. Some tires maybe, but um, the, the changes they're making now are refinements to what works, not necessarily game changers. All right. So back to the story. He gets the Ferrari, but something goes wrong because uh, by then – mention of the Laurel Hill Tunnel had appeared in another magazine. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So so other journalists are writing about this because they know it's there. I mean, people have been outside. You can go on YouTube right now and search Laurel Hill Tunnel, I don't know, racing tunnel, whatever you want to search, and you'll find that someone has camped outside there and listened and heard the sound of a race car accelerating inside that tunnel because it's encased right now. The, the, the end of the tunnel has a, a covering where you can park uh, race transporters. Uh-huh. And unload cars without anybody ever seeing what's in that race transporter, and then test them in the tunnel, and then return it. I, you know what? We'll we'll talk about how they do that. In oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the the point is that locals kind of know what's going on because they can hear the sounds coming from it. They see the tires. They see yeah. the trucks going in and out. There's this massive buildup at the front of the tunnel. There's um, a report of people hearing what can only be V8s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So there's racing engines that are that are accelerating inside the tunnel. And other reporters are, are also talking about it, but no one has been in the tunnel yet. That's the thing. Like, no one has been invited in and has an inside scoop on exactly what happens there. And that's why this author said, I held off on writing anything or publishing anything yeah. because I wanted to get, you know, kind of the scoop. I wanted to know exactly what was going on, not just base it all on, uh, you know, hearsay and uh, and rumor. Write another article about full of speculation right which which ganassi probably doesn't appreciate anyway because there's this great point in the article where ganassi says look it's not a secret tunnel it's a private tunnel ah yes and i respect that immensely because one thing that a lot of people forget especially urban explorers or people who become obsessed with a mysterious site is that if it's private property you're trespassing. And the reason Ganassi really doesn't want anybody to talk about this or didn't want anybody to talk about this was because um, if you look back at history, there's a lot there's a lot of times when something brand new comes on the scene and someone's doing something and, you know, new ideas, innovations, whatever, and they get banned in order for the competition to remain pure, I guess, so that, um, right. you know, the sanctioning bodies get involved. They say, oh, wait a minute, you're you're gaining an advantage by doing this. And uh, and that's not necessarily fair to everybody else because they can't do that. So if the more publicity that was known about, or, you know, the more that was known about this tunnel, the worse off it was for Ganassi and his team. More likely that the man would come busting down the door. Exactly right. Yeah. So we know that at this point in the story, Webster admits he says, "I have no idea what Ganassi paid for the tunnel, or even if he owns it." Um, what? Oh, okay. Wait a second. I know what you're saying. If he even owns it, and I, I understand where he's coming from. But when you call the uh, Pennsylvania Road Commission or whoever right. it was, yeah. and then you get a return call from Ganassi's PR guy, I mean, come on. He's, Who owns that tunnel? He's just being fair, I guess, or covering his bases. Yeah, because he he really truly doesn't know for sure. He hasn't seen the papers that say that he owns it, and he has to he has to keep everything above the board. You As know? he says, he's playing by the rules. And, Boy, and, right, but he also says he felt like he was losing because he was playing by the rules. He lost this chess game. Well, true, but something else happens, right? Yes, he meets a guy named Darren Manning. Now, Darren Manning is a uh, is a British driver in the United States. He races on the Indy Racing League, or IRL, 
and he's currently, I think he's on the, the team called Dreyer and Reinbold. And, but he was, he formerly raced for AJ Foyt Enterprises and this is interesting, Chip Ganassi Racing. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, yes. Right, yep. So he meets up with Darren Manning, and Darren Manning is, uh, is willing to talk about the tunnel and what goes on in the tunnel. And this is just like... You couldn't believe how excited the author was about this because no one wants to really talk about what happens there. But but Darren Manning says, not only have I raced and tested, I mean, I guess tested in there. You don't race in there. You test. Sure. But he tested. He said, I've crashed in the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. He uh, climbed 12 feet up the wall and slid down on the side, almost did a full loop. Yeah, back in 2004. So this would have been right about when... Uh, Ganassi took ownership of the tunnel. If he did, in fact, own it at that point, we're well, not entirely right, sure. Right around, maybe right around the time. It's better to say right around the time they were first using it that first year, because yeah. they're they're as we'll see when we talk a little bit more about what's actually in it and how they're doing this, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive. We're going to learn that it had to take a while to build it. It definitely did. Now they've, uh, you know, I've just taken a quick note look at uh, what they've done in this tunnel because, you know, in a tunnel it's kind of dark and damp and, um, you know, it gets really cold in there. Um, it, it's it's difficult to explain. Now the weather may stay the same inside the tunnel at a certain point, you know, because it's underground. It's like a cave. You know, it's always the same temperature, et cetera, same yeah. humidity. 
Well, in this tunnel, I guess they've they've had the had the tunnel completely repaved, of course, as you would expect. Um, they have climate control systems in place. They have safety equipment in place and data collection systems, of course. And I think the first um, recorded use of the tunnel is somewhere around 2004 when they tested the G-Force IndyCar. G-Force is just a, uh, a chassis design, but I would bet anything that that was what Darren Manning was in there doing. Yeah, he gives a pretty good uh, description of this that I think our listeners will enjoy. Yeah, so this is how the testing works, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it is pretty cool. So you want to – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell uh, us. So there's a quote from Manning. He says, have you ever seen the TV show Battlestar Galactica when those spaceships were shot from a tube? That's what testing in the tunnel was like. So he goes on to describe uh, how he starts out driving west, and he accelerates the car to 140 miles per hour and coasts as long as he can before stopping. But here's where it gets weird, Scott. When he stops, they've got a turntable at the end, and so the turntable mechanism spins the car around, and he heads back in the same uh, the opposite direction. But this time, he has to maintain precisely 130 miles an hour. And then he has to brake hard before the end of the tunnel. Right. So, okay, interesting. I mean, this sounds like the Batcave, doesn't it? It sounds it so does. It yeah. sounds really cool. Now, can you imagine? I, I I was just thinking about this. All right. So, you know, when uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a track with indie cars, and mm-hmm. they sound so cool. They sound great, yeah. right? Now, okay, when you're out on the street and you're you hear a street car that sounds really cool passing next to you, or a motorcycle or whatever, and you drive through even a short tunnel. That sound, how it's amplified and how it it's reverbs magnified. off the walls, yeah. it's, it's awesome, right? Can you imagine what a, a full-throttle IndyCar sounds like in a tunnel? I mean, for accelerating for you know several thousand feet. I've got the, the foot measurements yeah, of the tunnels the here. Yeah. But uh, can you imagine how cool that sounds when that thing accelerates up to 140 in a tunnel? I mean, it's got to be deafening, first of all. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it really must sound cool. And I know from watching those YouTube videos, that uh, you know, you can hear it from outside when they accelerate, when they take off. You can hear it kind of coming through that building on the end, the, the testing building, mm-hmm. or the, uh, I guess, the unloading building. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know what better to call that. I guess the loading and unloading dock. I think that's a good, we yeah. can just call it the dock or the pit. Uh, yeah. There are some problems with this because, again, Manning goes on to describe how this is not, as much as it may sound like racing, it's very important to remember this is testing. This is racing research. Yeah. So he he talks about how he was bored and playing a Game Boy and how it was how it was kind of a tough drive at times because there were um, some problems. This tunnel, as great as it was, was not perfect. The tires are cold. Yep. Uh, he's, he was uh, mentioning the pullback springs on the brakes. Yeah, it's kind of them like crazy. fatiguing on your on your legs and everything. I'm sure that there's, mm-hmm. fatigue plays a huge role in this whole thing. But yeah. you heard Ben Wright when he said he played a Game Boy while he was doing this because here's the reason. You would you would do this testing, and there'd be long periods where you're just sitting waiting for them to give you the go to uh, to come back the other way. So you're in the car. He said sometimes you'd be in the car for seven, eight, nine hours at a time. And that's a long, long time to sit in a position like that. I mean, you've seen uh, drivers get into and out of the Indy car. They're cramped quarters by any means. Right, uh, yeah. So by all means, rather. So you understand that, you know, they're, they're not exactly completely comfortable. I mean, it's not the worst place to be by any means, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But, you know, to be in there for seven or eight hours at a time or even more, they said they, they tested through the night sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there's long times when, you, again, you're probably sitting on that turntable just waiting for the call to say, you know, come on back at your 1.30 and then and the break really hard again. And yeah, do it yeah, over yeah. and over and over again. And there is, there are, of course, tremendous advantages because they can heat and cool 
the interior, they have climate control, which is huge, mm-hmm. and they don't have crosswinds, which could show up very easily when you're um, when you're when you're racing in a less controlled environment. And other teams also clearly saw the advantage of this uh, tunnel opportunity because word on the street is that Toyota's uh, old F1 team used it, and Ganassi also ran his stock car and his IMSA, his IMSA uh, sports in it. Yep, so so we're talking IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA, F1, and probably others. They don't know exactly who has tested right. in the tunnel, yeah. but there's been a lot of different types of vehicles that have tested in this. And the, the idea behind the whole thing, again, is that you've got repeatable results. You can You know exactly what the conditions were the time you went back, you know, time you went through it the first time is the same as going the opposite direction. So that's exactly what they're up to. They're, they're trying to find exactly the right um, balance in their aerodynamics, uh, their aerodynamic body work, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that, you know, how it deforms at speed may possibly lead to some type of advantage for that team because they, they do deform at, at above a certain speed. And I would guess it's right. lower than 140. And, uh, you know, how can you work that to your advantage? Because they have, um, a bit of natural flex to them, you know, all these, all these bits that are on the outside of the race car and trying to maximize that advantage is what it's all about. So let's talk some numbers real quick about how much track they actually have as far as testing goes. I've got the length of the tunnel if you'd like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. So the length of the Laurel Hill tunnel is 4,541 feet long and that's about nine tenths of a mile. Yeah, or 1384 meters. Okay. Meter. Well, ben, I'm, I'm impressed. I wrote it down earlier. Oh, okay. I thought you were uh, <laughs> off the top of your head doing that. Scott, I'm always going to be honest with you. I looked that up earlier. <laughs> of course. Of course you did. I mean, I could do the conversion in my head, but it would be awkward on the radio because we would be just sitting there going, uh. uh let's see. It takes a long time to do this. Long division. 1984. Carry the one. Mm-hmm. All right. So 4,541 feet long. Mm-hmm. And. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. I hope and, I did. And that's that's uh, four thousand five hundred forty-one feet long. But that is the whole stem to stern. That's not the int- you know that's not all acceleration. Yeah, not completely. I mean, there's a braking zone, and then we kind of determined just kind of talking it out that the turntables have to be outside the tunnel. I believe. Yeah, there's just uh, there's the one turntable, and and we were talking about this because remember this is a uh, essentially a two lane uh, tunnel, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you you were uh, mentioning before off the air about how a how an indie car would have to turn. Yeah, if if they park it on this turntable and they spin it around and it, I mean, if it was if it was not exactly centered on there, I would think that it would maybe clip the nose off of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know they're not two lanes wide totally, but it just seems like a better plan to have them outside the tunnel, just outside the tunnel. And of course, you know that that one end has the uh, the covering. I'm sure that the other end has something as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somewhere to turn around. They have to. It can't just be in, it can't be in reverse, obviously. They're not doing it that way. Um, so yeah, I think that the, uh, turntable or turntables would be on either end outside of the tunnel, but I can't confirm that. Well, we know one thing that is on either end are these, uh, big environmental control units that are mo- meant to regulate the temperature. That's another thing, you know, mm-hmm. as the car is testing, it will, it can change the temperature in which it exists, right? Mm, yeah. So, or which it races rather. So they use these, uh, AQS AirQuest 1000 dehumidifiers. Uh, they also have a portable weather station, uh, and some climate and air pressure systems at either side, but still the tunnel is not 
going to be perfectly sealed at each end. That's okay. just very close to impossible. I understand. Yep, so, yep. Still uh, dealing with the natural world around you. Right. So that's why the center section can have some some great testing conditions because you have corrective measures on either end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Got it. I think it's really smart. It is a real smart way to do it. And all of this, I mean, when you really think about what they're doing here, when they're, when they're trying to develop aerodynamics, it it makes perfect sense that they would want to test it at speed with the driver behind the wheel to give them, you know, kind of feedback on what the driver feels. That's one thing that is missing from wind tunnel testing, of course. Yeah. I mean, you can test all this stuff in, in, a, in a lab, in a, uh, you know, pristine lab. Sure. But until you get it out and actually drive it and feel it, I mean, that that's where it all kind of pays off, I guess, or where you get the best feedback from. Right. So when the car reaches that sweet spot, that test section on the run, it passes a de- data logging beacon. And then when it hits out of that run, it passes another beacon so it can clock sort of an endpoint mm-hmm. for, for just that section. Because, again... They want to get the data, not just from the car, but from that ambient environment. Sure. Ambient environment is a bit of a redundant phrase, I think. that's all right. (laughs) So – We know what you mean. There are other – you know, there are visual aids in there, of course, distance markers, internal lighting, uh, traffic light outfit. And the car itself is hooked up with uh, some other gear like telemetry and stuff. Uh, Overall, this is clearly a solid – a solid testing regime because, as they say, the proof is in the pudding, and these guys have been winning. Yep, exactly right. Now, the, the problem is, though, remember all that publicity that we talked about, how Ganassi was kind of fearful of, of word getting out? And this happened a long time ago, so we're not really letting the cat out of the bag here. Right, yeah. This, had, this was back in 2007, and even prior to that, you know, the author had been chasing it down for five years prior to that point. Um, the, the, the thing is that... IndyCar and NASCAR are kind of restricting the use of the tunnel, uh, his testing in the tunnel, because in 2015, both sanctioning bodies for IndyCar and NASCAR are reducing the time in which teams are allowed to test, so or further reducing, I should say. So outside testing, you know, outside of uh, you know the the uh, the NASCAR run events, you know, the NASCAR right. testing events is is completely banned, I believe, and I think IndyCar has uh, has limited. Um, they're on track and full size wind tunnel testing to something like 14 days. So that's yeah. a, a great reduction. Now they'll still be able to test there, but they're going to be limited to 14 days when in the past, you know, they could go there. I don't know what the, the limit was then, but, um, it's a, it's a greater restriction on what they're allowing. Yeah. The, uh, the thing is though, that once this kind of idea is out there, this idea, which is ambitious and I, I would say fairly brilliant too, if you can pull it off to just change the way that your team tests cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, this tunnel idea, everybody recognizes the promise of it. So in other countries, people are starting to try to work on their own tunnels. Yes, and over in England right now, as a matter of fact, there's a uh, there's an, a tunnel idea that's kind of taking formation at this point. Um, there's a company called Aero Research Partners, and they've announced that they're going to convert a 1.7-mile unused railway tunnel, sound familiar, huh. um, for vehicle testing. And the facility may be available for rental sometime in the next couple of years. So that's kind of exciting for um, everybody because I would think that even, you know, uh, streetcar manufacturers, you know, the, the big ones, Ford, oh, yeah. GM, Chrysler, Fiat, whoever, I mean, they all might want to test in this tunnel. It's a great idea. It could be a huge moneymaker for them. Oh, yeah, because if you want to test in a tunnel, start uh, saving your pennies now. Oh, yeah. I would and bet save quite a few. I would bet the day rate is pretty expensive there. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would see if we could work a deal, 
you know, of course, but that's <laughs> me. So one thing that I think is fascinating, I don't know if this would happen, but what if this kind of testing became one of the new benchmarks for a car, you know, like uh, a car's performance at Nürburgring is something that every car of a certain class has to do just so they can say they have it. Sure. The, like the moose test or, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, uh, oh, zero to 60. I mean, a lot of people look at those numbers as kind of the, uh, as the, the go-to stats, you know, for how a car is going to perform out in the real world. Well, what if they start deciding that, you know, the, the tunnel testing is the thing that they, if this car is not tunnel tested, I'm not buying it. That's maybe what they're going to say, right? Yeah, right, maybe exactly. I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> I mean, because most cars now are wind tunnel tested, but they're, just, they're not actually driven in a tunnel at speed. Yeah, and as we can see, again, it does make a difference. This is not some sort of useless novelty, right? Mm-hmm. It's not some sort of fun thing. There's actual science behind it. Yeah, exactly right. And you know, this story. I mean, there's there's so many little. Interesting angles in the story, and I know that we've probably skipped over a few things that were important there. If the author was listening, he would probably, you know, be uh, punching the wall right now that, you know, we've missed a couple things or some critical points. So if you want to read that story, it's definitely worth it. It's in Road and Track magazine, and it's called The Secret Racing Tunnel No One Wants to Talk About. And it's a fascinating read. There's other versions of that from other authors around, but this right. one, this one from, from Larry Webster is probably one of the most intriguing ones because he really did a lot of, of footwork and a lot of research and a lot mm. of talking to locals and it's, it's all here. And there's uh, some great storytelling with it too. Mm-hmm. So if you guys are like us and you love uh, the, the story surrounding a, an automotive adventure, then this really is one. Yeah. And I would say, check it out. You can see some choice, not entirely safe for work quotations in this too. So uh, that's a warning to anybody who's reading it to your kids. Oh, yeah, don't uh, <laughs> read it to your kids. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't do that. Not uh, recommended. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Now, you guys already know the drill. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, you can find us at Car Stuff HSW. Uh, but what we'd really like you to check out, if you get a chance, would be some of the videos that we have made recently. Most particularly, we made one on uh, wind tunnel testing. Yeah, we did. We've done an aerodynamic show, and uh, we've talked about several of the dream cars that used aerodynamics as well. Oh, I mean, yeah. There's a lot of stuff there that's uh, pretty good, if I don't, you know, if I may say so myself. So all you have to do is go to the How Stuff Works YouTube channel and scroll down. You'll find our, uh, our latest material there. I think we have a total of, what, about 15, 16, 17 shows maybe? Yeah, so check those out when you get a chance. We'll probably have more on the way. And, hey, while you're by a computer, uh, why not take a page out of Charlie Scott's book and write to us uh, with a suggestion for something you would like to hear in the future. Uh, almost all of our best ideas come from listeners just like you. So our email address is carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.